My name is Peter Dahl, and I can't speak because I'm dead. But as good as it feels to be dead, I've got a podcast to record. This is Inch High Hurdle, an unrefined podcast dabbling in refined taste. And this is Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's 2018 drama from Mexico. Here's what you need to know, the part of the show where I tell you what you need to know. Set in Mexico City in 1970, Roma is a story of Cleo, a a live-in maid for a middle-class household, just as life takes a turn for Cleo and for the matriarch of the family, Sofia. It is a semi-autobiographical depiction of the childhood of Alfonso Cuaron, who wrote, directed, shot, and edited this film. It premiered at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion, the top award at that festival. It was released in a select number of theaters before becoming available on Netflix. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Actress and Supporting Actress for Yalitza Aparicio and Marina de Tavira, and won three, Foreign Language Film, Director, and Cinematography. It did not win Best Picture, which was and is a travesty, touched on in the last episode, but Green Green Book won Best Picture, and ah... You know, it's it's even, it would be different if, like, there were a lot of really worthy films and, like, the vote just got split between a bunch of different movies and that just, you know, Green Book maybe just had general consensus approval and that's how it won because of, you know, the way that the, the Oscars votes for Best Picture on Ranked Choice voting. That's possible, but it wasn't a stacked year. There were a lot of very fine films, but nothing obvious, not not like Roma. I'm wondering if, you know, if this comes around a couple of years later and people are a little more used to the idea of Netflix films and, you know, post-Parasite, maybe it wins, but man, that's just, just off. <laughs> Just as bad as it gets, really is. Okay, but anyway, enough about the Oscars. Alfonso Cuaron is one of the world's greatest filmmakers, having been nominated for 11 Academy Awards in six different categories, a record he shares with two guys you might have heard of. There's Walt Disney and George Clooney. His directorial win for Roma was his second, following 2013's Gravity which is a good award. I don't really, that definitely uh, wasn't the best picture of that year. It didn't win best picture, but winning best director for that, like, yeah, I can see that. That's quite the, the directorial triumph. He has a diverse filmography to say the least, ranging from E2 Mama Tambien, which is a coming of age road story where two brothers travel with a woman, an older woman. And um, well, you know, to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is hands down universally considered the best of the Harry Potter films, um, even just throwing out whether or not they're good adaptations of the books, because that is a kind of a separate thing. Uh, most of them are not. Uh, that is just on a purely like, is this a good movie? That's with without question the best of the eight films. And he also directed Children of Men, which is sort of retrospectively one of those like, oh, oh, we didn't we did not give this enough credit when it came out. I believe that's 2007 or 2009, somewhere in there. But anyway, it's definitely, you know, on a lot of people's, you know, top 10, top 20 of the 
of the aughts. Uh, and I don't, it didn't really quite get that attention when it first came out, but that's a brilliant film. If you haven't seen Children of Men, check it out. But anyway, extremely diverse filmography from Quorum. So why should you watch this film? This is the part of the podcast where I tell you why you should watch this film. Well, the main reason is simple. It's one of the best films you will ever see. This does not mean I think it will be one of your favorite films. I love this film, but it's higher on my best list than favorite list. Maybe there's not enough action or romance or humor or any of the other number of things that make a film compelling to you. That's fine. But as a work of art, as a use of the medium, as an expression of love and humanity, the greatness of this film is superlative. It's, in my opinion, no, not in my opinion, it is objectively a great film. It is one of the best looking films you will see. It's another one of those where any single frame can be printed out and put on the wall. It's a black and white film, but that's not a gimmick. It's a breathtaking aesthetic choice. Common everyday images become fine art, making the world of Roma and the world around us something beautiful. The performances are great, um, and the performances from Aparicio and De Tavira depict women in a pretty uncommon way. Aparicio as Cleo shines in both the dramatic moments and in the mundanities of keeping house. There aren't a lot of stories centered on this kind of person. De Tavira plays the scorned wife, but not as a central character, not as the one in the spotlight. We see her through Cleo's observations, giving a unique perspective on this archetype. And this is one of the most... Um, What's the right word? Stirring? Moving? This film gets inside you to something so basic, something so sensitive and makes you feel. I don't know what the right word for it is. I'm sure the Germans have one, but there isn't quite one in English. Turn out the lights, put your phone away, have a glass of wine, and let this movie wash over you. It'll do what only the best movies can do. What kind of place is this? This is the part of the show where I explain some of the cultural differences that might make for some initial confusion for American audiences. So, what is Roma? Roma is named for the Colonia Roma, the neighborhood in Mexico City where the film takes place. It was founded as an affluent, exclusive part of the city, but by the 1970s it had become more modernized and diverse. Modern building styles started to overshadow the European, especially Parisian, style that had been its signature. While the majority of the dialogue is in Spanish, Cleo and the other maid, Adela, speak Mixtec, one of the indigenous languages of Mexico, one of many. Today, half a million people still speak Mystic, with the number of dialects ranging from a dozen to 53, depending on what linguists, it's one of those same things I have to argue about. At times, Cleo will be referred to as Manita. This is not part of her name. It's a term that means something like little sister. So when you're reading the subtitles, especially in the early part of the film, and you keep seeing Manita brought up, it's not a character name. It's, they're referring to Cleo as like little sister. It may be helpful to know some of the dynamics of race ethnicity in Mexico. And the main thing to observe here is the difference between people with more indigenous ancestry and people with more European ancestry. This might be obvious to many of you, but one thing that I've learned as I've become more educated about race and ethnicity is that sometimes the more that you learn, you think that everyone is also learning with you. Um, and sometimes there's things that might even seem basic that just aren't out there in popular knowledge. So just a short rundown of some of, of a key point with this topic as it relates to Mexico. 
Like Americans may have an idea of what a, a Mexican should look like. If I say think of a Mexican, I'm think we kind of know what you're going to think about, but there's hardly a definitive quote-unquote Mexican look. Most Mexicans might be termed as mestizo, which indicates a mix of indigenous and European heritage. I'm not quite sure if that's a preferred term anymore or if it's similar to mulatto, where it's kind of like, maybe this isn't the best thing to call people like this. Um, I don't see, you know, always room to learn. Whereas in many European countries and the United States, White superiority dictated anti-miscegenation. The idea of white superiority in Mexico suggested white blood should be combined with indigenous blood to improve those indigenous people. This resulted in mestizos. Mestizos with whiter skin who look more European would be higher in social class than mestizos with darker skin and people with primarily or exclusively indigenous heritage. This difference can be seen clearly in the juxtaposition of Sophia and Cleo. Uh, Sophia, played by uh, an indigenous woman, Elite Zaparizio, looks very indigenous. And Cleo, um, played by a Mexican woman, Marina de Tavira, looks quite European. Um, this She's not a gringa. Like, she she is Mexican, even though um, if you saw her on the street, you may not think so. So anyway, the 60s and 70s was a turbulent political and economic time in Mexico. It was one of the stages for the Cold War, and this theater was known as the Mexican Dirty War. It pitted the right-wing government, supported by the U.S., versus left-wing civilian groups demanding reforms. Put a pin in that real quick. Cleo's boyfriend, Fermin, has learned martial arts, but not just as a hobby. He is training with Los Halcones, the Hawks, a paramilitary group. Also, I thought that Los Halcones would be Falcons. But it's Hawks, and it seems like that's just sort of a portmanteau of the two, and I'm very confused. Los Halcones, with the support of the CIA, carried out El Halconazo, the Hawk Strike, also known as the Corpus Christi Massacre, in which the group killed nearly 120 student protesters. It's really as you get older and you learn about all the ways that the CIA has been involved with, like, Middle and Central America, Central and South America, excuse me. It's kind of like, oh, really? Oh, and here too? Oh, like, yeah, some just really bad shit. Okay, anyway, so now it's time for the part of the podcast that makes the most sense if you've seen the film. Spoiler warning. I'll discuss some of the themes, characters, scenes, and filmmaking choices that make this film great. Roma is about Cleo and... Metatextually, it's about Lebo, the maid for Quaron's family when he was a boy. It is about a great many other things, too, but to some degree, everything else this film is about orbits around Cleo and the fact of her existence. Consider it this way. Cleo is an indigenous woman working as a live-in maid for a middle-class mestizo family in the Roma neighborhood of Mexico City in 1970, and she's about to become pregnant. How must the arcs, moral and otherwise, of the universe bend for such a person to exist? In telling Cleo's story, Roma walks the thin, tenuous line between joy and suffering, sacred and profane, madness and clarity, life and death. This theme, this precarious position, is established early on in the rooftop laundry scene. When Pepe outmaneuvers his older brother and shoots him in what appears to be a game of Cowboys and Indians, a game that has not aged well, his older brother berates him, telling him that he is the one who was supposed to die. His brother storms off, and Pepe goes and lays down. Cleo has been watching, and when she asks what is wrong, Pepe says, I cannot talk. I'm dead. Cleo lays down next to him, 
And now when Pepe asks her a question, she responds in kind, cannot talk, dead. Then she says something very interesting. It feels good to be dead. This scene is driven by two young boys being silly, but it places us in a space where life and death appear to be such fickle, fleeting things. To live is to contend with the epistemic regime. To die is to rest and be free of your role. This space will continue to be explored throughout the film. Quick note, I love the way that they uh, stage it so that when Cleo lays down, her head just meets Pepe's perfectly. Like, and she doesn't even like look back. Like she's just measured it out exactly. Um, just one of those cool little filmmaking tricks that I just, uh, yeah, it just makes simple things in this movie really beautiful to watch. As this film explores that space, it draws attention to the absurdity of this position, this precarious position. While this is a serious, realistic film, there is a great deal of absurdity. A car too big to comfortably fit in a driveway, an awful marching band, a man shot of a cannon, gringos and wealthy mestizos shooting at nothing in particular, those same wealthy people watching as the forest burns and the workers try to put it out. The drunken man in a Christmas costume singing while the fires rage around him. Everything with Professor Zovek. Existence itself is absurd well before we construct societies out of it and make a lot of nonsense all on our own. I think that's why attention is drawn to airplanes passing overhead, including in the first and last shots of the film. We are immersed in all the cares and concerns of this particular time and place, but just overhead people are passing to somewhere else far from here where they will never have to think about Mexico City, and Mexico City will never have to think of them. But this setting, this tenuous position between life and death, this absurd state of affairs, is not what gives the film its emotional heft, its ability to get at something inside the audience usually left alone. The power and beauty of Roma is what the characters, especially Cleo and Sophia, do in response, which is, in short, love. Cleo's life is one long act of selfless service. She does everything for the family, and while, yes, it is her job and she gets paid, the love she shows for the children, the dedication to the adults, the lack of complaints when she is treated unfairly, this is selflessness and love in things both great and small. The world of Roma opens the door to cynicism, even nihilism, but its central characters don't accept that. They choose to love instead. The themes of Roma might be best distilled in the harrowing hospital sequence after the Helconazzo. Through no fault of her own, Cleo is suddenly in a desperate situation, as if she wasn't already facing the birth of her child with no father in the picture. She happens to be buying a crib for her child when the Helconazzo begins, and that stress induces labor. The stressful sequence of getting her to the delivery room is not how life is supposed to be brought into the world, but the grand march of history doesn't care about one Mexican mother and her baby. Of course, Cleo isn't the only one who needs medical attention, and if she isn't there with Sophia's mother, maybe she's not able to get into a delivery room at all. Maybe she has to wait in the chaotic hospital with the others who are not fortunate enough to have a connection inside. But through the determination of the driver and the grandmother and the dedication of the hospital staff, Cleo is able to get to a delivery room and then to a surgery unit. And then it's not enough. Her child is born dead. What a cruel, cruel world. The last image is of Cleo holding her dead child, weeping, 
loving it with all her heart for the few moments she has with her before she is taken away to be prepared for interment. It is a heart-aching moment, revealing the pain of loving in a world that can be so cruel. The fact then that Quaron is able to bring the film down from this just riveting sequence and then back up again after this sequence is a sign of true genius. That this it has like multiple um I stopped myself before saying multiple climaxes. Um not multiple endings, but like in some ways that is like the film distilled. And then it comes down and then gets back to the same place for the re beach rescue scene. Um, and then that's still not even the ending. And the ending is its own punch. It's green book. The photography and staging of this film are two of its many impressive aspects and both serve to advance the themes we've discussed so far. The photography serves to underscore the beauty of ordinary everyday things. No matter what it focuses on, no matter what's happening, it's something beautiful to look at. Take, for example, the opening sequence of the water washing over the floor. Even before we know what's being washed or why, even before we know that this is foreshadowing the beach rescue, the soapy water washing back and forth is beautiful to look at. So beautiful that it will stay with us as the film moves on and that scene takes on more meaning. There are two really neat camera tricks that Quaron uses throughout the film. The first is the interior pans. The steady movement in some central point turns the house into a carousel, unhurried and unchanged by the movements of characters in and out of the frame. Life goes on as people scurry to and fro, often unobserved. The other trick is the exterior trucking shots, or dolly shots, which gives the film such scale and scope, especially when they're in the city. They're dazzling and immersive, and this leads to my wonder at the staging of this film. There are a lot of how-do-they-do-that moments in this movie, perhaps none more so than the first exterior trucking shot as Cleo and Adela dash through the city to their lunch date. So just to be clear, if, if you don't know, the interior pans is basically where like, the camera's at a fixed point, and it's just like moving either from left to right or right to left, and it does so very slowly, very steadily, um, and the action kind of goes on around it. The trucking or uh, dolly shots is when, well, it's like imagine that the camera is on like a train track and it's uh, it's not rotating, it's just moving um, on, on a, in a straight line from left to right or, or right to left. And these track with um, characters as they're like running through through the city. Really, really cool things. Simultaneously, the camera in this movie is very noticeable and the craft is loud, but one could be forgiven for thinking they've actually been transported into this world. It's really cool. Sometimes when a um, camera is doing all these tricks, you're like, oh, I'm watching a movie. And here you can notice these things and be like, wow, this is really skillfully done. But at the same time, you, you don't see it. It's almost like watching a magic trick even after you know the trick, but still being wowed into like being half fooled into thinking that it's real even though you already know that it's a trick it's very cool as airplanes pass overhead cleo never looks up at them while well, we do cleo knows she's not getting out of this world we haven't quite learned it yet okay lastly let's blow through a few of my favorite little things in this movie things that the movie is not necessarily about 
but help make it the enjoyable work of art that it is. Tough showing for dogs in this movie. A reminder to us all that they are messy and loud and just a little overrated. That's probably, that's one of my hottest takes is that dogs overrated. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a cat dad. Um, this, guys, dogs just bark their heads off at you just for walking past. They take big dumps that have to be picked up. They have to be trained to go outside to use the, to go to the bathroom. They rip stuff up. They kill people. Like, and, but look, they're great. And this is the thing. Italian food is also great. Overrated. Christopher Nolan, great. Little overrated. Like, the, it's okay for things to be overrated but still be good. I'm not saying that dogs aren't good. I love dogs. I really, really like dogs. I enjoy spending time with them. They mean a lot to me. I cried and cried when my family had to put down our family, our first family dog last summer. Like, I love dogs, but they're overrated. People treat them like they're the best thing in the world, and they're not. Okay. I also, yeah, okay. So, anyway, um, we'll move on from that. This is not. Sometimes I think that for a while, The Ringer ran a, a podcast series called The Hottest Take. Uh, where people would just, it would, they were just like little 10-minute episodes where people would present and defend some sort of hot take on something. And I think I would have been able to bring bring a few good ones for that. Um, that's that's definitely would have been my first go-to I would have had. But anyway, it's a great movie for put-upon mothers. I didn't talk as much about Sophia as maybe I should have, but this is one of the more affecting depictions of a mother in film because of its messiness. There's that moment where she comes out of the room, having been on the phone talking about her husband, and one of her sons has been listening outside the door, and furious that he has been listening in on this conversation, she slaps him, and then she immediately hugs him and apologizes, and he hugs her back. We don't get to see that a lot, and it's really moving. It's a tough movie for men, just, you know, in general. It's you know, almost like men are the problem. Hmm. Wonder. Nah, that could be it. I don't know what it is about Mexican food, but there's something so right about it being eaten outside. The scene of the family eating at the cantina on the beach would be a great food scene if it wasn't for it being such an emotionally intense one. In that same scene, I appreciate the way one of the sons, one of the older sons, just sits there crying as he hears the awful news. It resonated with me as someone who has done that exact same thing at a dinner table after hearing horrible news. Cheeky move by Quaron having one of the films shown in the film be of two astronauts in space, being, of course, a reference to gravity. Go try the Professor Zovek thing. You know, stand, uh, put, blah, uh, wow, okay. I tried to say all three steps at once there. Close your eyes, touch your fingers to each other above your head, and then raise up one of your uh, feet so you're only standing on, on one leg. It's not actually that hard, which either means Quaron picked an unusual physical stunt or I'm a spiritual llama, and I don't really know which one is more likely. 
The ending sequence is something else. Think about it. it. Cleo getting back from vacation and going right to work, even as they tell a story of her heroism, agreeing to make a smoothie for one of the children like it's nothing at all, taking the laundry up to the rooftop, reminding us that she has to walk up all those stairs every time she does this, and as she passes out of the frame, an airplane passes overhead, and Quaron dedicates the film to Lebo. Fittingly, there is no cut or fade to black. The film and credits go on, just like life. It's a lot more penis than I think any of us expected, and I'm intrigued by Coron's decision not to just have Fermin put some underwear on, especially because Cleo is not nude and... Oh, I think I just talked my way to it. Genius. That does it for episode five. Next week, we'll be talking about the genre-bending Brazilian film Bacurau, which is available on Canopy and for a small rental fee on Amazon and other vendors. Again, if you're not familiar with Canopy, it's something that you may have access to through your local li library. It's basically just a, a streaming website um, where you get a, a certain number of uh, free titles to watch each month. Um, there's a lot of good independent foreign classical cinema on there, classic cinema. Uh, so yeah, if you don't know if you have it, just check with your library and you can make an account and um, it can be really helpful to find some of these films, including Baccarat, but otherwise it's like $2.99 on Amazon. Thanks for listening. Because we're alone. No matter what they tell you, we podcasters are always alone.